If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so that it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Hooper's Unhailed, a Capital Flavor production in partnership with 265 Media. What up? This was popping. It's your boy K-Dot, and I'm here to bring you part two of Hooper's Unhailed featuring Sylvia Crawley. Let's get it. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part two of Coach Sylvia Crawley's Hooper's Unhailed. Again, I am your host, KDOT, and we're going to jump right into what I call ill hoop stories. Now, this story is, of course, a fascinating one. It's an iconic one. It's a legendary one. I would like to know, Coach Crawley, what was the idea behind the blindfold dunk? <laughs> Thank you, K-Dot, for having me back for part two. Let's go. Let's um, get it. <laughs> um, okay, so um, here's the like ironic part. This, this was the one year that the NBA did not have the dunk contest in their all-star game. Um, you know, they just felt like, how many dunks can you do? It's just a bunch of repeats. I, I don't even really know the whole story behind why they took the dunk contest out. But it was a great opportunity for the ABL because this was going to be our first ever women's slam dunk contest, right? But mm-hmm. the thing, the catch was we needed at least six people to have a respectable dunk contest, right? At the time... You know, we won't be able to do our dunk contest. So, um, sorry, I'm getting a phone call. I taught, oh, okay. I taught Carol Walters, um, how to dunk, and she couldn't even dribble and dunk. She just had to, she had a hard time palming the ball. And so, I just told her, like, you know, just push the ball in your hand as hard as you can run up to the basket, hold the ball in the air, and then at the last second, like, turn it over and dunk it. And she could do it that way, right? So she didn't dribble mm-hmm. up to the basket like everybody else. But still, you know, it was still pretty cool. And it gave us the sixth person, so we were able to have a dunk contest. So um, leading up to it, I was favored to win. I had a lot of interviews by Sports Illustrated, um, every every magazine every newspaper um and so i started practicing for it because it started to get a lot of media attention so i was like okay i I gotta take this seriously i can't just show up and just casually dunk so um i lived in denver at the time i lived in a condo complex with like condominiums and some of the broncos lived in my same complex. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were helping me with this um, and some of my teammates as well. And 
they were like, look, y'all can't all just do the same right-hand dunk. I was like, that's all we can do. <laughs> you know, like, we can't do no windmills behind the back, between the legs stuff. So we came up with the idea to do a blindfold dunk. And when I practiced K-Dot, oh, my gosh, it was so terrible. I was off. You know, they were like, to the right, to the left. You jump too soon. You jump too late. I was like, look, my legs hurt. <laughs> my fingers were, like, ready to just bleed. I had calluses like crazy. So um, every time I tried, I missed, right? So I didn't feel comfortable with it. So I didn't tell any media, I didn't tell anybody outside of our group that was helping me work on this. I didn't tell anybody I was going to do a blindfold dunk. I said, okay, on the day of the contest, if I got it, if I have it down packed by then, I feel good about it, then I'll do it. But I'm just not going to tell anybody so it won't be a lot of pressure on me, right? So um, I finally got my steps right. We started marking the floor of when I needed to take off to do my two steps. Now, the deal was I was supposed to be able to see out of the blindfold. Like it literally was a blindfold gel pack that you put on your eyes when you get a facial, you know what I mean? And the eyes, oh, okay. and the eyes aren't covered. It's just gel around your eyes. Right. So my mom took some black sheer fabric and she covered it. And the way it was covered, I could see you, but you couldn't see my eyes. Like I put it on. And I was asking my friends who were helping me. I was like, can y'all see my eyes? They were like, no, we can't see your eyes at all. I was like, I can see everything. I can see y'all. I can see the basket, you know. I can see my mark on the floor. And so um, the day of the contest, they gave us a shoot around, right, where you could practice your dunks and stuff like that. And every time I tried it, K-Dot, I made it with the blindfold on. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it, y'all. I feel good. They was hyping me up, pushing me and stuff. <laughs> and so I still didn't tell any media about it. The day of the contest, um, the first round. Now, listen, the first round dunk, you've got to scroll on my Instagram page and find it. It's, it's the dunk that really don't get any credit, but it's the one that got me to the second round. My first round dunk, I had my legs spread like, like the Jumpman logo. Uh And my tongue out (laughs) and my arm back and dunked it. Um, And that got me to the second round. I think only three of us, maybe three of us made it to the second round. I can't even remember such a blur. And then the second dunk. Okay. So I stood under the basket. I took, I can't even remember. Um, I took double the steps. I know. I don't know if it was five or 10, but I took, big steps out in a in a semicircle because I mm-hmm. high jump I used to high jump and I I learned how to dunk exactly like a high jump right <laughs> so I did my steps from under the basket in a semicircle and then I got to my spot and now we had this game floor marked too I had the floor marked of where you know I should take off on my steps and my sister comes out and she puts the blindfold on me. She's trying to get a hair endorsement. So she had just got her hair done. It was bouncing. She came bouncing out on the court. And <laughs> I close my eyes and everybody starts screaming because they're figuring out like, oh my gosh, she's ready to do a blindfold dunk. So my sister ties the blindfold on me too tight. Now, okay, let me let me just say this. When I practice, I have my eyes open when I put the blindfold on. So once I tied mm-hmm. it, my eyes were open and ready to go. Well, this time I closed my eyes. Just I was I just got caught up in showmanship for the for the dunk contest, right? So I closed my eyes, 
my sister put the blindfold on me and she tied it too tight, K-Dot. So mm. now I couldn't open up my eyelids up underneath the mask, up underneath the blindfold. So I was like, I'm talking through my teeth at this time. I'm like, you tied it too tight. I can't open up my eyes. And she's like, oh my gosh, you want me to, she's like, you want me to redo it? She's, my sister is getting ready to have like a straight heart attack. And I was like, no, because then everybody's going to be suspicious that we rigged something. You know, I was like, I just got to go with it. She was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my. I said a little <laughs> prayer like, dear Lord, if you never do another thing for me ever in my life, I just ask that you do this one thing. <laughs> now, what I could see was straight down my nose. Like I couldn't open. Okay. I couldn't open up my eyes all the way, but I could see down my nose to my feet. So I was like, okay, I could see the floor. So if I could just see the see the lane, see my mark or something like that, I will know what to do. I hope. I pray, right? So I take off. <laughs> I take off dribbling. I get to the lane, to the key. I see my mark, which is kind of like right inside the free throw line. And I take my two steps. And I like, I'm in the air, God knows where, <laughs> but I connected on the dunk. Like I felt, it felt good coming off my hand. I grabbed the rim. I felt the ball go through, you know, how, like the ball could just bounce off the back of the rim. That happened a lot Facts. when I practice, but on this day, the ball, I connected on this dunk and pulled the rim. I heard the rim, like I saw how hard I pulled it down. And, and, like, I feed off of energy. Like, the crowd was going wild. And, like, when I played, like, the louder the crowd cheered, like, the harder, the better I could play and the harder and the higher I could jump. So I was definitely feeding off the energy of the crowd, and I connected. And when it went in, I pulled the blindfold off and was jumping around like I was cheering louder than the fans when I made it. <laughs> and I know they were like, she cheering for herself. But I was so happy that I actually pulled that off because it did not go as planned. So people ask me all the time, could you see the answer to that question is yes, but not like I wanted to. <laughs> all I could see was the floor. So it still was like a miracle in and of itself. Still an incredible feat, you know. Um, I mean, like, Kate, thought I, I challenge you to go to the gym today, tie a scarf on your head, and only be able to see down your nose and see if you could complete that dunk. <laughs> so, uh, all right, all right, now, coach, let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> now, your boy is Spud Webb, maybe a little taller than Spud Webb, so I don't know. Okay, especially what I'm saying. <laughs> try, try doing it without being able to see the rim. <laughs> I don't care how high you can jump, you know. Like it's just, it's just different, man. So, so yeah. Immediately following that, I was pulled into a room with my at the time boyfriend, my sister, my agent. The door shut behind us. It was like the um, commissioner of the league. All, all of their um, front office people, a few of their front office people. And they, my agent was like, the WNBA wants you to switch leagues. Like they were calling mm. my agent and was like, listen, we will blow this out of proportion. If she switches over to the WNBA, she would have commercials endorsements. And so the ABL wanted to know, okay, what we got to do to keep you? What, what do we have to do in order for you to not go to the WNBA? And I'm in the room like, huh? Is this a joke or something? So my agent was like, hey, tell them what you want. 
So in this moment, I got a chance to spell out my own contract. Like that does not happen for LeBron. Doesn't that doesn't happen for Michael Jordan. Like in the history of pro sports, you don't get to say what you want, really. I mean, you can negotiate, your agent can negotiate, but you don't sit down with David Stern or, you know, whoever the commissioner is at that time and say, I want this, 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 and this. So I was like, okay, I need to be the highest paid woman in the world, both leagues and overseas. So Shamika Holstock was supposed to come out and, and make the first billion dollar contract. They, it was rumored, you know, that hadn't happened to this day, but <laughs> she was supposed to make a million dollars. I said, if she make a million, I need to make a million and one. <laughs> right. And so <laughs> um, I signed with um, Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I went on tour um, I was on a Keenan Ivory Wayans late night show. I was on Jay Leno's late night show. I was on Sinbad's Vibe. I don't. You probably don't even remember that. But oh, I remember. I remember Vibe. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be traded. Like night. I got traded immediately on the spot, like two hours after the dunk contest. So I went from Colorado Explosion to Portland Power, where I played for Lynn Dunn. Um, she called me up. Was like, "Welcome to the team." And so uh, she's like, I hear you're on tour. Like, I'm on Good Morning America. Like, it's crazy. And so I was like, Coach Dunn, um, I, I just, I felt nervous because I'm on a new team and I hadn't been to practice. And a game, like, you know, in a league, you play like every other day, every three days or so. And so right. um, she was like, oh, don't worry about it. You're the face of the league right now. You just do what you do. And I said, what about the play? She said, when we pass you the ball, shoot it. I said, okay. <laughs> so I just went on tour living my best life. I mean, they were flying me. They gave me a flight, hotel. They had cars pick me up. Like I had drivers and it was just an unbelievable time. Um, so go figure the one time I'm the highest paid player in the world, both leagues, um, you know, I've got endorsements, I've got commercials, I've got posters. Um, the league folded um, December, yeah, Christmas Eve, December 24th, the league folded. So I never got that money, you know. Um, people joke and say, you bankrupt the league. No, I didn't. I never got, I never got a dime of that contract because it was supposed to start on my next contract. Right. So, um, so, yeah, like just my luck, like, you know, when I'm at the top, the bottom falls out. <laughs> so the league filed title nine. Um, they did not have the sponsorship and the backing and the commercials for marketing to survive. Mm -hmm. And um, it got crazy because first we were staying at the Ritz and then all of a sudden we were kind of at a different caliber of hotel. Like we first, then we were like at the W hotel. Then we were kind of like at an embassy suites. <laughs> um, we went from having charter buses that take us to the airport to like, we're in a, a white van, you know, just kind of 24 passenger van. <laughs> I'm like, what happened to our bus? Um, so, you know, just per diem money was changing. We didn't get as much per diem. And so we kind of saw the signs, but we just thought, okay, we making budget cuts and stuff. And we got a letter that said, how much of your salary are you willing to give back to the league if you, if you had to? And everybody was like, nothing. I need to be getting paid more. You know, we, we had no mm -hmm. idea how serious, you know, things were. And shortly after that, I didn't get a call from my coach. I got a text message saying 
I'm sorry the ABL has filed chapter title and like title nine, chapter nine and bankruptcy. And I'm like, huh, what? And I had just bought my whole family stuff for Christmas. I took, I said, take all that stuff back. I'm unemployed. (laughs) Um, So there were like 90 of us. We lost our jobs that day. We all knew each other. We're all friends with each other. The WNBA said, we got 20 spots for y'all. Made a best 20 win. And they had a combine camp. They gave us a jersey with a number on the back. The poor seniors who were coming out of college that year, none of, you know, it was just a tough year to be a senior because why would you draft a senior in college when you can get veterans from a very elite league in the ABL? Like we were arguably um, known as the league with the most talent. Um, And so, or the best talent. We said that, but the, the, the WNBA felt like they had the best talent. Um, they had all the Olympians, um, so they put they placed one on each team in the WNBA. Um, but we just had straight ballers who played for the love of the game, you know. Um, so we mm-hmm. had more kind of marquee players. And so we got to that camp. Even though we were friends, we fought each other like cats and dogs for those 20 spots. And what was sad was that many of us didn't have a resume. I was one of them. We didn't have um, any work experience because you got to think about it, K-Dot. When we were young, we played AAU basketball in the summers. We didn't work, right, Right. so that we can get a scholarship. We got our scholarship, and then we stayed on campus in the summer, went to summer school so we could go pro, all right? Then we we went pro. And so now we're playing in a league, but then you play overseas on your offseason. So I'd never even worked at McDonald's, like not a paper route, not nothing. So I had nothing to put on my resume. No work experience, nothing. So, you know, I had no plan B. I put all my eggs in one basket and I just was hooping, man. Just hooping. My sister's like, what did you major in? I was like, communications. She's like, what What did you want to do with that? I was like, no, I thought I wanted to be the next Oprah. I don't know. She was like, what? You got a full scholarship? And, and that was everybody. That was the case of many, many women. And so that was a turning point in my life. I said, never again will I put all my eggs in one basket. So when you look at my Instagram profile and you see that, you know, I have a magazine, I'm co-founder of Monarch Magazine, that I'm the CEO of Crowley's Creation as Fashion and Interior Design, that I'm a global coach, like I'm going to have a plan A, B, C, and D. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because if anybody filed bankruptcy, I'm still going to eat. I'm still going to pay my mortgage. My family going to be good, right? And so... That's, that's a fact. Right. And so my message to my players, even as a global coach, um, my, my vision is to create total athletes. Like, not you can't just be a shooter. You got to be able to shoot and drive and pass and be a rebounding guard, right? Um, because I, I feel like if you're one-dimensional, like if you can only shoot K-Dot as a coach, I'm only going to put you in the game when we need points. If we're down or they right. or if they go zone on us, okay, K-Dot, come on, we need you. You're the shooter, right? And so Absolutely. you can get in the game and miss a couple shots, boop, I'm taking you out. This, you're saying somebody to play your same position can miss those same two shots, they stand in the game. And you want to know, how come every time I make a mistake, you take me out of the game, I can't find my rhythm? Well... All you do is shoot and you're off tonight. So we got to get you out. 
But the, but the, the other person that plays your position, they miss two shots, but we can't afford to take them out because they could pass. They're the only one that passed to the post. They remember the plays. They get back on transition defense. They rebound. They take charges. We can't afford to take them out, right? And so the goal is to be multi-talented, do multiple things so that you can always stay in the game. But sometimes the game is basketball, but ultimately the game is life. And so I'm going to have a plan B, C, D, because at the end of the day, I'm going to always stay in the game and I'm always going to eat. Absolutely. And that leads me into the next thing that I want to talk about. With the WNBA celebrating its 25th season this year, I mean, let's let's all just, you know, call it out. I mean, you were a part of that. So can you just tell me, you know, a little bit about, you know, your time in the WNBA as a player and then transitioning, um, you know, even into uh, the coaching realms of it? Um, with us celebrating 25 uh, seasons with the WNBA. And by the way, that new basketball is like fire. Like <laughs> I'm thinking about ordering one. I, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, y- you could say that we are pioneers for, you know, kind of what you get to witness now. When we were coming out of college, there was not a league in the United States. And so um, we had to play overseas. We had to be mentally tough so that um, eventually when the league came, then we got an opportunity. So, you know, um, it was, I played back when the salaries were very low, right? Now they have better salaries, you know, and I'm happy about that. I, I don't hate on that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, like about time type of thing. Um, but, you know, it was just an interesting Okay, so my story was I was not one of those 20 people from the ABL that got in. Um, the, the, the draft came and went, and my name was never called, and I was devastated. Like, I had a draft party at my house. And my boys, who I was playing pickup with every day to train, and, you know, I was back at the University of North Carolina training with my coaches, but playing pickup with a bunch of guys all day long, every day, um, lifting mm-hmm. weights. They lift weights with me. Um and so, and we watched like NBA games at night. I was the only girl, it was just all guys in the apartment. They lived up to, um, upstairs and I lived downstairs. And um, so I had a pro party, like we grilled out. They was grilling all kind of meat and stuff. And so, um, you know, people came to the party and the draft came and went. And my agent had called ahead of time. You know, agents can call the coaches to see like, hey, you interested in my player? And they're like, yeah, I predict this should probably go third round, you know, maybe late second, third round. And she'll definitely get picked up because there's a shortage of post players. And she won the dunk contest for the ABL. So for sure, she'll get picked up. Draft came and went. Name wasn't called. I kicked everybody out of my house. I was embarrassed. I was crying. I was laying face down on a carpet. And so um, my agent was like, you know, don't give up sent me to Italy, found me a contract in Italy just to stay in shape, work on getting stronger. I wanted feedback. I wanted to know, like, how come I didn't get drafted? Like, this was the first time I had ever failed. Like, people prepared me for gold medals and national championships, but they never prepared me for what I perceived as failure, and I did not handle it very well at all. And so, um, so, you know, I went to Italy, tucked my tail between my legs, and, um, 
continued on with my career. And then the next year they started four new franchises and Portland fire was one of them. And it just made sense to the league to keep me in Portland since I played for Portland power for the ABL. Um, and they, mm-hmm. and, and so I went to Portland fire. I got invited to their training camp and they were just like, look, we don't have any starters here. It's wide open. So you want a job, go, go hard. Right. And look to your left and to your right. Don't make a friend. Because whoever don't go hard in practice, you're going to be on the next flight smoking. I was like, dang, it was cut. When I tell you it was cutthroat, it was cutthroat. And so um, I made the team. Um, I became a starter for that team. It ended up being the biggest blessing of my life. Because had I been drafted, you know, if you go to the Sparks, you ain't knocking Lisa Leslie off the block. That's her team, right? Right. You go to to, uh, the Comets. You're not knocking Tina Thompson off her plate. You know, you're not going to start over her. That's her squad. Every team had an Olympian center, like post player that was established. And so Portland Fire was wide open. There were no starters. So I became the starting center for their team. And you play every other day. Like, listen, KDOT, we played um, Phoenix at home. The next day we played Phoenix at Phoenix. We were racing them literally to the airport. To, to get to the city so that we could get one more hour of sleep than them just just oh, to wow. get the advantage yeah it was crazy like that and so um you know like playing in the games your body by the end of the season you're like running in quicksand like your legs are just jelly it's crazy when it's your first year in the league um so you know um by this time I'm about 28 years old which in dog, you know, like basketball years are like dog years. You're old if you're 28. <laughs> you know, like media starting to say like, when you, when do you think you're going to retire someday? Now, I still got four years left on my contract, but they're already kind of like asking me those questions. And I always felt like I'm going to play this game till the wheels fall off. Nice. You know what I mean? Like that was just my mentality. That was all our mentality. Like, I'm a, like we get, we practice in a league. You practice for one hour a day. That's it. That's your job. Like people working from nine to five, we work for one hour because you play every day. You can't have no three hour practices twice a day. Now training right. camp is a beast, but once the season starts, you just, you basically doing scouting reports and shooting because shoot every day is a shoot around. Right. So I was like, I'm going to do this for at, like until I can't do it anymore. Like I knew it wasn't going to last forever, but once the media started saying, you know, when do you think you'll retire type questions, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, <laughs> let me. And then tr- the Portland Trailblazers didn't buy our team. Like, they opened it up for every NBA franchise to buy their WNBA franchise. And some teams kept their their teams and some teams didn't. And our, you know, our franchise said, we, we don't want them, basically. Um so, and it was just, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it like that, but in terms of facilities and there wasn't a lot of room in the weight room and the training room, we shared all that with the men and they mm-hmm. wanted their own space. So basically our, our team folded. So now I'm back in a, I'm in a, um, what do they call it? Dispersal draft. Cause they had to just disperse our team. The Cleveland Rockers shut down. So all those players had to be dispersed throughout the league. And I ended up in um, San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but while I was at Portland, right, right before the league ended, I started thinking about the future 
um, I was talking to my head coach at North Carolina and she said, why don't you try coaching? She's like, you, we've always told you you were going to be a coach. I said, yeah, I don't really want to do that. She said, give it a try. Just give it a try. So I um, played for three months in the WNBA and I coached for nine months simultaneously in the same year. Mm. And it gave me a very, very unique perspective as a coach, K-Dot, because I played and I, I, I was coaching, right? for nine months and I was like how do I I was struggling to like motivate the players because I was on a sideline like usually I'm in the huddle and I'm like okay look y'all we gotta buy everybody got box out blah, blah, blah. but I'm on the side and I feel like nobody's listening to me over here like how do I do what I do as a player from over here I went from being a participant to a observant mm-hmm so I just, I couldn't figure it out, but I had a chance to go back to the WNBA and play again to figure it out. And I also got a chance to do the same drills that I was asking my players to do. Now I get to see how my body feels. Now I get to see when you ask a player to bend their knees for this long, this is how this feels. And when you have them do a shell drill and then transition defense, no water break, this is how they're this is how they feel, right? So I became a player's coach, you know, because like a lot of coaches have been so far removed from playing that they don't even, they're asking players to do some stuff that they they probably couldn't even do themselves as a player. <laughs> but when you play and coach in the same year, you get it. Like you get, you get what your body's going to feel like at the end of the season, and right? And so what I figured out is that as a coach, what, what I was doing as a player to make me effective as a captain of every team I played on, KD, K-Dot, every single, even abroad when there was a language barrier, they voted me as a captain. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because my energy, like energy has no language. You know what I mean? Like I, I just, I'm a winner. I want to win. I'm going to um, chest bump you. I'm going to high five you. I'm going to get you hype. I'm going to get me hype. And, um, and so how do I do that as a coach? The secret was I built relationships with everybody. Like I knew which one of my teammates I could grab by the collar of her shirt and say, listen, you will box out because this will not be my last game. But I couldn't do that to everybody. You know what I mean? Like it was some people that couldn't handle that. There were right. some people that you could just get in their face and almost spit on them, going off on them because they're not doing what they're supposed to. They weren't weak side while I'm fronting the post. Right. I was going to jump you for that because I'm busting my butt to get in front of my man. And you ain't weak side. They just throw a lob over my hand. She get an easy bucket. Oh, heck right. no. I'm coming for you. <laughs> and whoever didn't help to help her, I'm coming for you, too. Right. But I had a relationship to know, like, everybody got a different love language. So some people's love language was words of affirmation. So I got to be like, look, baby girl, you're the best rebounder in the world. But, if you, but you got to box out. So I gave her a compliment, but then I then I added the, you know, like the critique or whatever, right? right. Or somebody else's physical touch. I got to go to my point guard, Marion Jones, and put my hand on her shoulder and say, look, you got you to gotta go with the hot hand. Whoever got the hot, I know they put pressure on you to run the play to their side, but you got to decide who got the hot hand. Now she got it because I touched her on her shoulder, right? Because right. her, her language is physical touch. Somebody else's is gifts. So now I got to put some candy in a bag, write a card, put it in their locker because they had a bad game in a shooting slump. 
Now I can talk to that person because I gave them a gift. That's their love language, right? So once I figured out that, that relationships was the key, then I had to do that as a coach. Now I got to I gotta take this kid, not in my office. I don't want to meet with you in my office. Let's go to lunch. I'll meet them on their turf. I'm going to the cafeteria on campus. And I'm meeting. They're like, hey, Coach C, I got regular clothes on. We out of the, the arena of the basketball court or my office. And we just talking. I'm like, how your mom and dad doing? You know, like about them, not about their game and what do we need them to do. Like, how are you doing? You know, like this your first year. What's the hardest? I'm asking questions. What was the hardest transition for you? You know, that kind of stuff. Now I'm learning these players. I'm learning what makes them tick. I'm learning how they receive information and how to best communicate to them and things that don't work for them at all. And so, um, so yeah, so that was an incredible experience to be able to play and coach. Um, I got bit by the coaching bug. I was just supposed to try it out. I did that for two years. I was one of seven players who did that. Don Staley was one. Charlotte Smith was another um, out of the seven. And so, um, so yeah, so my eye for the game, when I watched the game, and I, and I actually got a chance to commentate for ESPN 2 and 3, and the perspective that I brought to the game was just, like, incredible because I see the game from all angles because of that experience, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I transitioned full-time eventually into coaching. I retired in 2004 from San Antonio. Um, what made me retire, like, I got a chance to work Michael Jordan's camp, and I talked mm-hmm. to – this was when Mike retired the second time, right? And I said, Mike, how did you know? How do you know when it's your time to retire? He said, Crowley, your body and your heart will let you know. And I didn't understand that at that time. But when it was my time, I overstood it, K-Dot. Like, I overstood what he was talking about. Like, my knees started bothering me. And I could still run and still jump and dunk and everything. But my knees just, I mean, it just was different. I could, on my free throw routine, I used to drop it like it was hot, bounce two times, bounce the ball. Like, I had to change all that, (laughs) you know. Um, And then, you know, just. I just had a low tolerance level because I was coaching then, right? So right. I understood the value of possessions. And so I, I began to be like kind of Kobe on the court, right? I'd be pissed off at myself if I turned the ball over. I try to sub myself out. But other people who, you know, we lost a game, ain't really care. They in the locker room just, you know, thinking about what they're going to do that night. And it, it just was different for me all of a sudden. And, um, you know, I, I love the game, right? But it was almost like it was sucking the love of the game out of me. Just, I, I just was disheartened by a lot of stuff that was around me and um, things that were happening. And, and I changed, you know what I mean? Like, I, my, I just changed. I, I, had a, I was a, I had a coach's mentality at that time. And so, um, so yeah, I, we had, it was the last game of the season for San Antonio. We had a new poster that had just came out with just the starting five. And I looked at the poster and I looked like I didn't even want to be out there. <laughs> I was like, oh, dang, wow. like my eyes just look like, and my eyes are the window to my soul. You always know what I'm feeling, thinking everything by my eyes. And so um, we had an autograph session and this little girl said, do you like to play basketball? No, she said, do you even like to play basketball? Like that word even just cut me like a knife. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, 
Yes, I love playing basketball. You like I practice for one hour a day, you know, I love my job and my whole little spiel that I always said to people. And she looked at the picture and then she looked back at me and she said, Are you sure? This was like a little she was might have been like five years old. And I after you know, after she took the poster, she went down the line to the next person. And somebody else was at my table, like for an autograph, and I went. I was still looking at the little girl, <laughs> all the way down the line. Like that little girl just read me like a book, and I had always felt like God has strategically placed me smack dab in the WNBA for a specific reason, and that was like to let my light shine in the middle of just so much, so much stuff that was going on, right? Um, but I felt like my light was so dim that. I couldn't even fool a five-year-old little girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my light was dim. Right. So um, the words that Michael Jordan said, like rang in my head night after night, like your body and your heart will just let you know when it's your time. And so my agent was like, I talked to my agent about it. She said, Sylvia, you just had a bad experience. San Antonio had a bad year. You had a coaching change. You know, you guys lost some games. You're not used to losing that much. She said, I'll tell you what, I got you a contract in Korea, making big money, $25,000 a month. They're a championship team. The head coach is the Olympic coach, and a lot of the national players are on your team. So you guys are guaranteed almost to win a championship. She said, promise me that you'll go there, complete a season. And then if you still feel like you want to retire, I'll buy your retirement gift. I was like, all right, bet. So I went to Korea um, and we did not. We played in the championship game. Um, we got cheated. I'm not the one to be, I'm not one of those people to be like, they cheated us. But literally we got cheated out of a championship um, because nobody liked our coach. Nobody. Mm. He, he was like the Geno of the WKBL, which is the Women's Korean Basketball League. Like, he just dominated all the teams. Every he, we, we always had an X on our back. People couldn't stand him. They thought he was arrogant. But really, he was brilliant, just like Gino. And um, so it, it was always like the refs and the other team against us, right? Even the fans against us. So we didn't win a championship, but I still had a very positive year, um, ended on, you know, my career on a very good note. I still felt like I still want to retire. Um, and so I came back, I flew to San Antonio. They had just hired D Brown from the NBA. Mm -hmm. Um, he had just got the head coaching job at San Antonio and I, flew in just to talk to him and I said D and he he was like sending me messages emailing me calling me texting me saying how excited he was about getting a new job and he had big plans for me I was going to get to play forward because we have Margot Dedek who's seven foot two right right and so um she was going to play the five I was finally going to be a true four which is what I wanted and I said D I'm retiring he was like, what? Somebody, he's like, no. Somebody. I was like, listen, D, listen, I just, I can't do it anymore. And so I wanted to tell you face to face. And he wanted to know why. And I didn't want to tell him why, because he was so excited about his new job. And I wanted him to, I didn't want to like bust his bubble. I wanted him to have his own experiences there. Um, and so I retired. And then I went full time into coaching. Full, I went directly actually to seminary school. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and then I ended up, um, yeah, so I went to seminary school, graduated from seminary, and I went full-time into coaching where I ended up at Fordham University, where I coached Jada. And I was just there for one year, um, Jada's senior year. And um, the head coach got forced to retire. And mm-hmm. I became the interim head coach for like four months. And that gave me like valuable kind of head coaching experience um, all of a sudden. And so Fordham wanted to hire me as the next head coach, but they needed to do a complete search and make it look like, you know, they interviewed a bunch of people and made the right decision. Um, But they were dragging their feet. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they were nervous about hiring another African-American coach. Lewis was African-American male. And normally, if it doesn't work out at a university, they, they will try to go in the opposite direction. So if it was male, they normally go female. If it was white, they might go black. If it was black, they might go white that time, you know. So they just try to mix it up to see what will work for that community, for that team. Um, so they were nervous, really, because I had never been a head coach before. They wanted to give me a three-year contract if they hired me, right? So... Um, they were like dragging their feet and they had one last candidate to interview. She got sick and they pushed it back a week. And so I was like, what's going on? They were like, we're not saying no, Sylvia, but we're not saying yes. Just keep all your options open. I was like, oh, word. Like I thought I had the job in the bag. And then now they talking about keep your options open. Like they switched on me. So I got on the internet and was like, all right, let me see who hired. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's how they're rolling. And so I saw that Ohio University was looking for a head coach. I'm from Ohio. It made sense. So I called the school to see if they had found a coach yet. And the AD answered the phone. And I was like, mm, I'd like to apply. Have you, hi- have you hired anyone? He was like, no, we haven't found a good fit. Send your resume. I sent my resume. He called me right back. He was like, can you be here on Tuesday? I was like, uh, yeah, he said, I did a little research and I hear that Fordham wants to hire you. The minute they find out that you want to come here, they're going to hire you. I said, no, they're dragging their feet. They don't know what they want to do here. So um, he was like, well, if I buy your ticket, you give me your word that you'll come. I said, I give you my word that I'll come. So I went to work the next day as the interim, worked out the kids um, and I said, um, I won't be here on Tuesday. I have an interview. They said, what? For what? For what position? I said, head coach, of course. <laughs> they were like, um, so you want to go? I said, yeah, I'm going to go. They said, well, okay, you got the job. I said, no, 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 no. They said you were going to do that. And I gave them my word that I was going to come. <laughs> so I'm going. They said, well, should we tell the kids that you took the job? I said, no, don't tell the kids nothing. So I get back. I will talk to the kids. So I get on the plane. They have the former head coach who I work for, Coach Lewis, call me while I'm on the runway. The, the steward is like, ma'am, you have to turn your phone off or get ready to take off. He's like, Sylvia, they're going to offer you the job. They're going to give you five years instead of three years. You got to get off that plane. I'm like, I can't. The plane is moving. Like, I can't get off this plane. <laughs> so I go to Ohio University, and my brother is a graduate of Ohio University. He has his Ph.D. from there. And he was a professor there. He called the president of the university, who's like African-American former track runner. He's like 50 years old, you know, super cool, hip. Um, He calls him up and was like, listen, 
Fordham just offered my sister the job, but she's still coming there. Like, if y'all want her, y'all better come strong. <laughs> I didn't know my brother did that because I'm the youngest, so I don't like for them to, like, try to help me out. Like, no, let me get it on my own, you know? So he tipped them right. off unbeknownst to me. I get there, and the president is at the airport. Now, normally, like, the AD might pick you up or they got a driver for you. The president's at the airport, and we go out to eat. Um, we talk. He's basically winking at me like, you got this job. I was like, can I pull out my PowerPoint presentation? They're like, we don't need that. We know who you are. You don't you put that back in your briefcase. <laughs> yeah, put, the, put that yeah, back. What, what, so, what you doing with that? Put that back. Yeah, so the interview went very well. Um, I ended up getting the job. I had to fly back to um, the Bronx to talk to my players at Fordham who – I worked so hard, K-Dot, to get in with these kids. These are like New York, New Jersey kids that don't trust people. Like, Jada was the main one. Like, she just did not trust anybody. And um, Well, I can I can relate. I'm from the Bronx, so <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I felt like, okay, to get in with these kids, I got to figure out who the leaders are. And that was Jada. That was a So, I got in. I got straight to their hearts. You know what I mean? And and I genuinely like love those kids and they could feel that they knew it. They opened up to me and now I'm leaving. So I called a team meeting in the locker room and um, I was stuttering. I was, man, I was messed up in the head, you know? Um, but I had to tell them, you know, that I um, got another job at Ohio university and that I wouldn't be there next season. Jada was a senior, so she was graduating anyways, but some of the younger ones, I was close to them as well. And they just, cry oh my gosh and it just broke my heart and I just stopped like coaches don't want to hear you say like I really care about you and like just tell them what you got to tell them and um and that's it man you know they don't want to they just can't comprehend it all in that moment and so they're they, they really take it as if like you're leaving us type of thing and these kids had like separation anxiety and that's mm -hmm. why they didn't trust people you know so, I mean, I felt like trash, but, you know, it's the nature of coaching. Like, you just, you can't stay um, at the same level for your whole life. I mean, and some people have no aspirations of ever being a head coach, but that was always my aspiration from the beginning when I got in. And, and I served. When I tell you I served as an assistant, um, I mean, I would have players come to me and say, you should be our head coach. And I'd be like, I wouldn't even let them say those words. Right. Because I never wanted to be disrespectful to the person that I coached under. And so um, so ultimately they understood, mm -hmm. you know, one of them spoke up and said, you know, we know, Coach Crowley, that God has, um, you know, greater plans for you. And we wish you the best, you know, and although selfishly, well, we want you here. We want God's best for you and, you know, for you and your family. We know you're from Ohio. You get to go home with your parents. So they. They understood it, but they didn't like it. Neither did I. And so I packed all my stuff in my office. They all sat on the front porch of the Rose Garden, um, Rose Arena, I think was the name of their gym. They were, You know how there's those steps in the front? They were sitting on the steps. Now, I had to turn in my car keys, my office keys, my cell phone. Like, they just stripped me of everything. I left with the shirt on my back, right? <laughs> And I had one of my boys from the YMCA that I used to play pickup with. <laughs> he came and picked me up because I had no car to take me home. He had a pickup truck. I was in the back of his truck. 
and I was looking I was looking at the kids on the porch and they like crying and hugging each other and I'm like I feel like a bad mother just leaving my kids <laughs> I was like watching them go out we turned the corner I couldn't see them anymore and I just bawled cried all the way home but um so yeah like I I just one of my downfalls as a coach is that um I often got accused from my assistants of caring too much. Like my assistants would be like, Coach C, you care too way too much. These kids will graduate, they will transfer, they will leave you. You just care way too much. But I used to be them. You know what I mean? Like I used to be them. So and you know, I think right. my grandmother used to say, my great this is my great grandmother. She used to say, if there's something You can complain like everybody else, or you could change it. And so, um, you know, what I didn't like about sports, athletics, is that athletics could chew you up in four years and spit you out. <laughs> and that's it. On to the next recruits, you know. And I got tired of athletes being equipped for sports right. and not for life. And so I could complain about that on a podcast and on a clubhouse with everybody else, or I could roll up my sleeves and try to change that. And that's why I started coaching. And it's funny because when you, you can have your why for any profession, but somewhere along the line, like politics kick in and things happen and you forget, you forget like, you know, the reason why you came into the whole game. And so, um, so yeah, that that was part of my journey. Um, so I was at Ohio Ohio University, and then went to Boston. Um, so became the first um, African American to coach at Boston College. It's a Jesuit school. I was the only black at the time in the ACC, so there mm-hmm. was a, an enormous amount of pressure on me, partly that I put on myself because I felt like. You know, I, I got to do well for others behind me because if this works, they will hire more women. They will hire more African-American men and women. So, I mean, I had to do it for, I felt like other, you know, just my, for the culture. And so, you know, things that people were getting away with, I couldn't get away with, you know. Um, you know, so there's coaches that cheat and lie and recruit to, to get recruits and I couldn't do, I had to do everything by the book, you know, because I felt like, you know, they'll fire me. I'll be on front page of USA Today tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's a fact. one of my other downfalls as a coach, I wouldn't say downfall, it's a strength and a weakness at the same time, but this is with everything that I do. If I watch a movie, I become the character, the main character. If I read a book, I become the mm. main character. So I always had to protect my ear and eye gates like I can't watch every movie on Netflix they will mess me up because like pursuit of happiness I was homeless I was Will Smith sleeping in the bathroom <laughs> you know so it's the same for me with coaching like if I got a kid that's got a death in the family I got a death in my family you know the kid's dog died my dog died <laughs> like I'm praying for them with them so my, my empathy is like times 10 especially when I'm coaching because I think of my team as my family, you know? And so, um, so I didn't have the ability to let things go or just like cast my cares upon the Lord. I'm so much better at that now, but back when I was a head coach, I really struggled with that. 
And so um, my last year at Boston College, I was there for four years. I had just got a two-year extension to six years. But on my fourth year, I was diagnosed with an aneurysm Mm -hmm. on the right side of my brain. And they said, coach, you know, you just, you need more water. You need more sleep. You need less screaming, less lights. Like I was having migraines and chest pains at the same time. And my body was in so much pain. I would just collapse. Now I'm, I'm the person that never oh, wow. goes to the hospital, to the doctor ever. Like I don't take medicine, like none of that. I've never, Kato, I played for 23 years and did not, well, I take that back. I missed one game in my whole career because I had a concussion they thought I had a concussion and they I warmed up that next game because I was career and so um I wanted to warm up and they watched to see how I warmed up and they just said no nah, it ain't worth it so they pulled me so mm-hmm. I missed one game my whole career so I you know I'm not faint over any little thing like I collapsed and shut my body just shut down to protect itself right so um so yeah they were checking Mm -hmm. my heart you know doing EKGs in my heart and my mom told me that we have a history of aneurysms in our family so I'm named after my aunt Sylvia and she died at age 18 in her sleep from an aneurysm so my mom was like have them do an MRA which is an MRI Mm. of the brain and when they did that is when they found the aneurysm on the right side. So, so I ended up having to, we, I met with the AD and my doctor, my mom, and, you know, we talked about the recovery time to have brain surgery. Um, what is the likelihood of it reoccurring? And so my doctor said, if you come back to the same exact environment with the same lights that are causing your migraines, same whistles, same lifestyle not eating not getting enough sleep and that you can't change that that's a coach's life you're going to screen the plays on the other side of the floor I didn't carry a whistle but the referees had whistles right beside me blowing in my ear you know like you just you're going to be at the airport eating airport food where you can't have good food all the time so um, so I made a decision to step down. Um, Boston College bought me out of my contract for the next. They paid me for those years that I missed, um, which was a blessing. Um, mm-hmm. And so then I had to have a meeting with my team again to let them know that I was stepping down. A lot of them, you know, Boston College got very diverse when I got there. Let's just say that. Um, so there were a lot of players from the South who would never go to school in Boston where it's cold, <laughs> but they came there, you know, to play for me. And so now I'm gone and they, they, you know, they're like, I came here for you coach. Like, I don't want to be in Boston. It's cold here. And so, um, so I made them promise me that they would graduate and finish, you know, like a degree from Boston college is it's next tier to Ivy league. You know, you've got Ivy league schools and then you've got Stanford, Vanderbilt, Boston college, you know, um, Duke University, you know, where academics is like first at those schools and they just happen to play basketball, you know, but we were able to do some incredible things. Um, we upset um, all the top teams in the ACC for the first time in the program's history. We, um, we were the only team and the first team to beat all of the Carolina schools. So we beat Duke State and Carolina in the same year that had never, ever been done, especially by Boston College. Um, We became up-tempo for the first time. Um, They were coming from um, 
the Big East. So they played a different style of basketball, but I changed it to up tempo. Um, with you know some play, with the least athletic mm-hmm. team in the conference actually when I first got them. So um, those kids did an incredible job of adapting and adjusting, and just trusting my vision and my leadership. And um, you know it was a special team. So. So anyways, I ended up stepping down from coaching um, in 2012, I believe. Um, And so, yeah, so that kind of seemed like the end of my college coaching career for a little bit. So I got some rest, changed my lifestyle, um, stopped getting perms in my hair, which um, did a lot of good for my migraines and my fibroids, um, um, which is what they... um, you know, just studies show that that's what um, black women have in common is the perms and the dye that they put in their hair. So I just did a complete lifestyle change and got healthier, got better. You know, um, you have to take care of your body because, you know, if you don't give your body what it needs, your body's going to get what it wants. <laughs> like your right. body will shut you down and get the rest that it needs, whether you right. want it to or not. So, you know, you might as well take care of it and do what you need to do before you get completely shut down. So that was a lesson that I learned. And right before I got diagnosed with an aneurysm, I dropped my phone and cracked it, cracked the screen. I was like, dang. So I got it fixed. um, And then I dropped it again and it cracked. And so then I was like, no way. Like the first time it's like, this is crazy. Like it was like a fluke. But the second time I just was sitting there looking at the phone. And I was like, what in the world? And so um, there was something on TV that said, if you don't take care of the things that in your that are in your possession, that are in your hands, you'll lose it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I started mm-hmm. thinking about the things that were in my possession, right? Like my team, you know, they like their parents released them to college to be in my care, my custody, in my hands, you know? So that was my program. That was my health. That was my cell phone even. (laughs) So um, that was just, and you know how like after things happen, when you look back and you see the signs, you know, um, I've always had signs along the way to like, let me know, give me a warning, like, okay, you better take care. You better do this. And it's up to you to take heed, to see those signs. Like you have to be in tune and sensitive enough to like see those things when it happens. So, so anyways, just, you know, long journey through sports. Um, I ended up, you know, after my lifestyle change, I started, I coached in the um, WNBA for Indiana fever. I chose to go to the WNBA because it's only a three month season. So I said, let me see how my body reacts to whistles and lights again and yelling down the court. And um, I did it. My body responded very well. But I felt like, mm, this is not my level. I was very clear about that. Like, this is not my le- my age group. Like, I've always mm-hmm. loved, and I didn't realize this until I coached in the WNBA, but I always love inspiring young hearts and minds and helping kids discover who they are and their identity. And I felt like in the WNBA, like, they were grown. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they weren't searching for who they were. They knew who they were right they were settled in that and um you know like not really looking to develop they they're at the top of their field you know so I would hang out after practice see if anybody wanted to 
work out, get some extra individual work. They, they're like, like they had kids. They they were married. They're like, no, nah, I'm going home. <laughs> so it just was different, very different from college. You know, it wasn't that team atmosphere where you lift as a team. And the pros, you got 10 workouts this month. You don't do it, you get fined. You don't have no partner. You, just get, you can go at 6 o'clock in the morning. You can go at 10 o'clock at night if you want to. Like, get, get your job done. So different concept, different, um, mm-hmm. less team oriented, you know, it's more of a job. Um, so I miss that. Like my age group is the college age, like from high school to 21 years old. That is my age group. I'm very clear about that now. Um, just, you know, helping people find their way, discover who they are, that type of thing. Just, you know, feeding their minds with information and, and, and like this generation, they don't need information from us. They got Google, they got the internet, they got every app in the world. They just need wisdom, guidance, direction, and encouragement. And that's all they really want from us. And so, yeah, so that's why I decided to go back to college coaching and now I'm doing global coaching and I love that more than any other coaching I've done so far because there are no ADs, there's no recruiting, um I you know people know what what I'm going to give them and they come to me because they want that versus like if you coach a college team when you get there um they might not want to be pushed hard you know what I mean like they might not want to be the best you know what I mean and so um if you train people right. they're coming to you because they want what you have to offer you don't have to twist their arm to do it you know what i mean like they're right. paying for that service so they either gonna do it or waste their money that's on them type of thing so um and i work for athletes in action which i really believe in that organization they want to see a christian on every team in the world not in the country but in the world and so um so yeah, um, I'm loving it. I'm loving just having access to inspire more people on a mass level globally. So I'm training kids in India and in Africa, um, as well as in the U.S. My goal is to bring everybody together in one mass session and just kind of work on being total athletes together. It's tricky because the timeline differences, but um, yeah, that's that's my goal. They're they're little girls and and I coach men and women, but their goal is to play in America for university someday and ultimately in the WNBA and NBA. Um, and I walked a mile in the shoes that they want to walk in, right? And so they're just hungry. They're so hungry for knowledge, any little tip that will make them a little bit better, a little bit faster. Um, they're they're just sponges. They're just sucking it up. So. So it's a good situation. And, and, I, and the, here's the best part about it all, okay, Dot. I get to stay right here in Durham and take care of my parents. So occasionally I have to travel. I'll take a traveling team to a country. So um, the last time I did that, I went to Barcelona. So I had two players from UCLA, two players from Kentucky, a player from Texas A&M. So I get college players from all over the country. And we put together a squad and we go abroad. Mm-hmm. And so they get international experience because all of these players want to play either WNBA or overseas. And I give them the raw experience. Like we stayed at a, um, I forget what they call it, but it was just like, you know, one room with a bunch of bunk beds for everybody. <laughs> and that's kind of how you travel overseas, you know. 
um, <laughs> we went to um, eat some of the authentic food. Like we didn't go to McDonald's and, and Hard Rock Cafe over there. You know, like I wanted them to really experience the culture, the language, the food and things like that. So, um, so it was a great experience, you know, and we went there to witness to other teams and the teams weren't receptive of that. They were like, we don't believe in God. We just rather um, go out for dinner and have some drinks. We're like, what? Like our players have prepared their testimonies to share with them. They didn't want to hear that. So we went out to eat with them and just individually talk to them one-on-one. And what we learned is you have to build a relationship with people. You can't just go over there and be like, let me tell you about God. Like they're just not, some people just aren't open to that. And um, so, you know, once we build relationships and kept in touch with people, then then, you know, that opened up the door for us. But ultimately, that whole trip was for our team. Every last one of our team um, built a closer relationship with God. Like even the most hardcore players that we had that they on the, on the outside, they seem hardcore, but they ended up crying the most when they shared their testimony, like cry like newborn babies. And so it was just a beautiful experience that everybody was so transparent and vulnerable and um, and it was just an opportunity for, you know, God to step in and kind of take control of the whole trip. So it, it was beautiful. We did an enormous amount of team building. Like I wish team college teams could do more team building, but it's just their schedules because they're student athletes. They're going to class. They got weights. Like there's just not time for a lot of team building. But that's what's lacking, I think, in collegiate sports, because now with cell phones, I think players spend so much time by themselves on their phone, taking selfies, playing games that the team building part of it is missing. You know, like K-Dot, when you play, you have bus trips and you play cards on the bus. You play on the road trips, play cards, you play dominoes, you watch movies together. You went to a restaurant and you ate. And you talk to each other at the restaurant. You can have your headphones at the restaurant. These kids get food catered in. They don't ever leave the hotel. They charter to the game. So there is no bus trip, right? When they get there, the bus is at the runway. They don't even carry their bags. Used to be the freshmen had to carry the bags, help the trainers. No, 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 no. The sky cap puts the bags on there. (laughs) There are no freshman duties, right? That was part of maturing and growing up and being tough. And then when you get to the hotel, food is catered in. You never even, our kids don't even have a pack of coat if they go to Boston College because they weren't going outside for nothing. Everything was catered into them. So that you don't have like the whole restaurant experience where you're sitting there for hours for the whole team to be fed. Like mm-mm, 15 minutes in the conference room, eat your food, you're going back to your room, doing what you get your phone and do what you do. So it's majorly, majorly lacking in collegiate sports right now. And so it's hard to get the teams to play together because they train with their trainer individually with cones, with their head down. Right. And so now you're talking about driving kick. What? I'm going to the hole, coach. <laughs> so it's just a whole different dynamic um, of how things are done. And so I'm happy with the global coaching because I think this is the future of coaching. Just, you know, with COVID, everybody had to go virtual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, everybody had to do a Zoom workout here or there. And so um, 
so yeah, it's just, it's been an interesting journey for me. Um, but the biggest thing that I've learned through sports and how I transfer that to my life today is that it taught me um, determination. It taught me about commitment. It taught me about mental toughness. It taught me about how to handle pressure. It taught me about how to be a go-to player and finish in the clutch. Um, <laughs> it taught me how, most importantly, how to play to win. A lot of people, okay, that play um, not to lose. They're going through life just trying not to lose. They don't want to make mistakes because mistakes are costly. And I think if you, if you, you I don't think you can play to not lose because you'll lose. <laughs> you're on, you're playing defense every day, but, but to win a game, there has to be some offense. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like you got to play and you got to love to win more than you hate to lose, I think. And I can go, I can go for another hour about that. Um, <laughs> but I learned how to play to win. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so now I'm an entrepreneur and I'm just playing to win, man. <laughs> and there you have it. I mean, such an amazing story and I am blessed to, uh, be a part of it now because as you spoke um you know i just gave you a chance to just speak it out because people need to listen right and i, I thank you for um being a part of this now official? you are officially <laughs> an alum um <laughs> so you know it's i mean you're you're a part of the elite company right you're part of the elite company so <laughs> I appreciate you. So why don't you go ahead and, and plug all of your um, socials um, if you would like. And um, okay, you know, so we'll I'm go all ahead and wrap board. it up from there. Um, I got a brand brand, K-Dot. So it's Crowley's, Cre <laughs> Crowley's Creation on um, IG, Absolutely. on Facebook, <laughs> on Pinterest, on Etsy. Um, so Crowley's with an apostrophe S, Creation. That's where you can find me everywhere. YouTube. Don't let me forget YouTube. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Plug mm -hmm. that YouTube channel. Yep. Like and subscribe. Make sure you subscribe there. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. This has been another episode of Hoopers Unhailed. Again, I am your host, KDOT. And as I say every week, peace and blessings to everyone out there and we'll holla at you. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Another Hooper unhailed, another story told. I would like to thank Coach Sylvia Crawley for taking her time to talk to me about her life story and her basketball journey. But don't worry, we're back with another episode next week of Hooper's Unhailed, so stay tuned. In the meantime, in between time, this is KDOT signing off. Peace and love, and I'll holla at you. Three, two, one, fire. It's a capital flavor production. Yeah.